Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, welcome out there in Blog Talk Radio land. First of all, I want to remind you guys, you know, this is April the 1st. I hope none of you get food today. I can remember when I was a kid, people would get me. Somebody just sitting, been planning for who knows how long on how they're going to get you on something. So hopefully you stay alert. <laughs> and if not, if not and somebody gets you, you can have a good laugh. So happy April Fool's Day. Can you believe it's April already? Feels like it, like November just went by, but I want to welcome all of you. I always like to take a moment to thank our loyal guests who've been with us since we started over at Blog Talk Radio, not not Blog Talk Radio, over at Blake Radio, and they play the smoothest jazz. I always give Neil Blake, I always give them a shout out. But that's what we started over 12 years ago, and then we came uh, to Blog Talk Radio, so we're going into our 13th year. And we've had some amazing, and I do mean amazing guests on this show uh, that have gone on to do national and internationally things. I tell I tell our listeners all the time, you see some guests who've been on our show, you see them on international television every single day. Uh, so we, we've been so, so blessed. New York Times best-selling authors. We've had some really good guests on the show. And we have another phenomenal guest on deck for you today. I want to start by uh, giving, just putting a thought in your head. And this this thought is a is some a quote from Steve Jobs, something that he said. And and the quote is, if you are working on something that you really care about, you don't have to be pushed. The vision pulls you. And and I also agree with that. If you are working on something that you really care about, you don't have to be pushed. The vision pulls you. So welcome again, and if you just joined us, you are listening to the winning book radio show, Off the Shelf, and thank you again for being here with us. I encourage you, whether you're a loyal listener or you just started putting Off the Shelf on your Saturday morning, 11 o'clock, things, wonderful, amazing, blessed Beneficial things to do, and you'll be blessed every time you tune into the show on Saturdays at 11 a.m. I want to ask you, how good of a mystery sleuth are you? Do you think you can figure out who done it before you get to the end of a book? And how much do you value relationships? And I mean from different prongs. In in, in love pour over me, there's the incredibly complicated relationship between a father and a son, and I think that's something that needs to be surfaced. And also there's there's a relationship between two soulmates. Because of what the son goes through with his father, this is not a, as smooth a relationship as so many readers would want it to be, but it's so rewarding and is right. And then you have Raymond, who's he's a, he and Brenda – and Malcolm, who is Raymond's father, they're like three of the stars of Love Pour Over Me. But Raymond has friends, and his friends go on, one of them to do very well in the NFL. But you get to see, and he's also tied in. I don't want to give away too much of the story uh, to something that goes on in the in Love Pour Over Me. You get to see how all of them, just like we do, impact each other impact and influence each other's journey and sometimes it's not till you get to maybe the end of love pour over me that you see wow how everybody helped to shape and impact each other so i encourage you to get a copy 
of Love Pour Over Me. You can get it in ebook or in print. If you don't see it on the shelves, just go ask the clerk. Say, I'd like to get a copy of Love Pour Over Me by Denise Turney, and they can order a copy for you because it's carried by the largest book distributors in the world. And I hope that before this show ends, you just click on over to Amazon or Barnes & Noble and treat yourself to a copy of Love for Over Me and let let me know how you enjoy Love for Over Me. And now let us go and meet today's off-the-shelf guest. I, I, I research for all of the shows, and I, I get more and more excited about the show as I'm doing the research as I learn more and more about the guests that I'm I'm excited to share with you all today and I'm I'm a learner as well to hear what the guests actually share and they always, always bless me. And our special off the shelf guest this morning is Diane Lebrin. I put her in to get a picture of her, you guys, to go with um to go with the show. Diane Lebrin, D I A N L E B R I N and every I, I LeBron James came up all over the place. I said, how can I get, I said, I'm putting in Diane LeBrin, and he's he's coming up everywhere. But Diane is a St. Croix native, and she is a mother, a public speaker, and she's the author of the books. He was there all the time. What a wonderful title. I'm not in it by myself. And I when I was doing my research, I saw a new book she's got out. I think it's titled Abuse Abuser. And you can visit Diane online at LeBrinBooks.com, and that's spelled L-E-B-R-I-N-B-O-O-K-S.com. And you'll probably have to put in her website URL and not just her name because if you put in her name, you're going to get a lot of LeBron James stuff. So welcome to Off the Shelf, Diane. Thank you. It is such a blessing to have you here uh, with us. It's almost like you, LeBron James' sister. I, I guess I said, okay, I can't find anything on her. His pictures. I said, why is why is he coming up all over the place? I tried putting books in and everything, and he kept coming up. But it's such a pleasure to have you here with us on off the Thank shelf. You so much. Before we. Before we go into the show's questions, there are a few questions I ask every single guest we have on the show, just to give our listeners a little backstory on the author before we just start diving in to their books. So before we launch into today's questions, can you tell off-the-shelf listeners where you grew up, Diane? I know we said St. Croix, but if you could describe it a little bit for those of us who have never been there so if you could tell us where you grew up and what life was like for you growing up. Well, I was born in St. Croix. First of all, let me say thank you again so much. I truly, truly appreciate this opportunity. I didn't want to miss that again, so thank you again so much. But I was born in St. Croix to the parents of St. Lucians. So I grew up basically on two islands. I grew up on the island of St. Croix, and I grew up on the island of St. Lucia. And depending on what mood I'm in, you get to hear the accent, depending on the mood, St. Croix and St. Lucia. They are very beautiful islands, but they are very different. The uh, St. Croix is, is the United States Virgin Islands, whereas St. Lucia is the British Islands. So it's two beautiful islands, but very, very different. 
Okay. Okay. So what? So when you where did where did you grow up? You were born there, but you didn't grow mm-hmm. up there. So where did you where did you grow up? I grew up on both islands. So I spent oh. I spent yes. Yeah, so I spent some time in Saint Croix and then went back to Saint Lucia. And after a certain amount of years, I went back to Saint Croix. Came back to Saint Lucia, and then went back to Saint Croix. And after Saint Croix, after I was like sixteen, then uh, that's when I moved to Texas, to Baytown, Texas, to be exact. I just, you know, it's kind of interesting. I just met somebody yesterday when I was in the store who told me she's headed to Texas, uh, to Austin, Texas. So, did you have? Do you have siblings? Um, when you grew up, was it? Was it? Um, uh, was it, did you grow up the the area? Was it? Was it a, like a small town, fast city lifestyle? Did you have brothers and sisters? Yes, I have. I uh, lost my older brother uh, three years ago. So altogether, my father had nine children, and one is gone. So, but my father and my mother had six children. So I grew up in the house with the six, where I knew, of course, of my other three siblings. But I left the island. I left a home at such a young age. Like I said before because of bouncing from one island to another, my mother, you know, was just giving me away. But where I grew up in St. Lucia was a very little bitty uh, town, you know. It's called Lakai, the the Lakai, the village area. It's very small, very hilly, you know, very close to the ocean, you know, eating fresh fruits up off the trees, just just what you would kind of imagine paradise would be is what St. Lucia is, whereas St. Croix is more, because it's a part of, uh, because it is the U.S. Virgin Island, it has more of the U.S. ways. So you'll then, ah. in St. Croix, you'll find McDonald's. Yeah, you'll find McDonald's, you'll find Wendy's. But you go to St. Lucia, you won't find those. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Yes. And that's a good thing because fast food, I'm trying to eat more healthy myself. Uh, that's 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 a good thing. That people who are in countries where it's not so Americanized, they tend to be healthier uh, a lot of times, from what I I hear. What did you dream of becoming when you were a kid? When you were a little girl, I just heard uh, I was watching a recap of the Johnny Carson show last night, and uh, and one of the, the guys said he started thinking about being a scientist when he was five years old, and it's amazing how our Ideals start to concept and and birth themselves in us when we're very very young, and sometimes we just drop them and sometimes we pursue them. But what did you dream of becoming when you were a kid? <laughs> it is so funny. I don't know if you can go back. I'm going to date myself a little bit. I wanted to be uh, a stewardess for Eastern Airlines. I don't know if you remember wow. that. Wow. <laughs> I wanted to be a student, and then I wanted to be a nurse. But for whatever reason, as time moved on, I came to a place where I didn't know what I wanted to do anymore because I came to a place where I didn't know me. So after after I realized, you know what, I don't want to be a nurse, I think when I really changed 
about becoming a nurse is when the AIDS epidemic first came out and the young guy, uh, Ryan White, I don't know if you remember him, Elton John wrote that song and everything about him. After yep. that, I remember they said there was a nurse that got infected with the virus by by accidentally uh, hitting herself with the needle. So after that, I changed mm-hmm. my mind about becoming a nurse, and then I was just in the wind. I didn't know anything. Can you tell us, now this wasn't a question I was going to ask you, and this is how people get the blessings come through off the shelf. You were in the wind, you did, and I've gone through periods in my life where I felt stuck, just like mm-hmm. no matter what I'm doing, I'm in the same spot. So when you, you said you felt like you were in the wind, what was that process like in case somebody who listens to the show live now or in the future, uh, what was that like for you, and how did you get through that? Oh, my God, I was in the wind for such a long, long time. I was in the wind literally for decades, and the reason why is because I didn't know who I was because by the time I was 12 years old, my mother had already given me away four times, and the last people she gave me away to, she has no idea who they are. She just put me on a plane from St. Lucia and just shipped me off to St. Croix. So even though I knew the people in St. Croix, and they have been very good to me, they became awesome uh, uh, adoptive parents and awesome siblings to me, it still was not the same of having the own connection with mom and dad and brother and sister. So you 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 know you were part of the family, but at the same time you still kind of felt left out. You still kind of felt like you was that that you know that 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 some that was not connected to everybody else. So I kept on staying in that place until oh my God, maybe just a few years ago, and that's the honest truth. Well, you know what? Bless you for continuing to uh, to move forward. I will say we had a, some, a guest on the show, and it was incredulous to me. When you hear people's stories, this is why I always tell myself, just love people and don't do nothing else because you don't know what's going on in people's lives. Right. We've never had a guest on that hasn't given a backstory that was surprising. We try to judge each other based on what we look like and we, we right. miss it every time. That's why we shouldn't do that. But we had a guest on who, at six six months old, her mother passed, and at six mm-hmm. years old, her father passed. And today, she helps uh, people who are orphans uh, in Canada because she knows what that feels like. But it's it's just uh, when you say mom, my mom passed when I was seven years old. I don't think you ever fully recover from that. You 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 do. You can be strong in the Lord, but you know, you you like for myself wonder what would my what would I be like if my mom had been healthy and had survived. Mm. You know, you wonder. I, I'll never know the answer to that question. But like you said, you spent decades in the wind, but you trusted God enough to get through it. Like that other guest who lost her mother at six months, father at six years. You just you just trust enough to get to get through those headwinds. And for any of our listeners who are in that place. Just trust God to keep moving forward. Now, you wanted yeah. to be an airline stewardess, then you wanted to be a nurse. <laughs> How old were you, Diane, when you knew you wanted to be a writer? I did not know I ever wanted to be a writer because English 
was one of my worst subjects in elementary, junior high, high school. Everywhere I went, English was my worst subject. I had no clue God had placed uh, the ability to write books on the inside of me until 2013. I was telling wow. my story to, to, to a friend. And she said, you need to write a book and let people know. And I thought about it. I was like, yeah, but I never moved on it until after I had a major surgery in June of 2013 where death literally came and knocked on my door. And then she came to me and said, and, you know, she called to check on me, and she said, you really need to go ahead and start writing that book. And I remember I was in so much pain because I had spent like almost two weeks in the hospital. So I was still on uh, under heavy medication. And I remember I pulled out my laptop and all I did was like put my name, I think, as the title of the book, I think. And I closed the laptop and I laid back down because I was in such pain. But each day, I would I would write something, and there were days that went by I didn't write anything because my body was just too weak. But as I continued to write, I recognized, and I came to the understanding, I started getting more strength, and I realized out of all the counseling and therapy I had, this was like the best therapy and counseling of my life, writing those books. Isn't that something? Oh, my goodness. Isn't that something? Mm-hmm. And and you know what, psychotherapists will encourage you to journal or do something. You have to express express yourself. What a, what a, 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 a your story is so amazing. And I want to get into your books, but first I wanted to ask you: Did, did growing up, you grew up on two islands? Has growing up, you didn't grow up in like the main part of the United States. Did that impact your writing? You have a different view, probably, of things than somebody who grew up right here in the mainland part. Like I, when I was stationed in Hawaii, that's part of the United States, but it's different. So, did that did that impact your writing? And do you think that it actually has enriched your writings? Absolutely, I I really do think so because one of the things I tell. The editor, I tell, I tell them, I say, hey, I write like I speak, and the way we express ourselves is the ex- is the very exact way I write. So I have to let them know, hey, when you read this, it may not make sense to you. Call me, let me know, so I can explain it to you. But one of the things I ask them to do, I ask them not to take off too much of me, because. Ah. When I when I when I uh, when I express myself, I feel the way that we write in America it takes away some of the substance of the writing mm. because the definition of the word and the way we use that word and the way we express that word is different. I think it has it made a great difference in in my writing, and I think it allowed me to express myself in a way that. Only me know how to express myself. Uh, you know, I like what you just said, <laughs> and you're so right. Uh, only I know how. To, in a way, only I know how to express myself. When you're dealing with editors, and they, and I've heard actors say this, they get upset, and musicians get upset. 
they're they're coming at it from their experience, and because the editor or the producer or the director, they're thinking of it from a marketing perspective, they're having you totally change it all, and they're like, wait a minute. The artist is like, wait a minute, this is I'm ex- this is my story. You, you you don't you don't know my story as well as I do, so you keep telling me to change it. You don't know it as well as I do. Can you yeah. can you uh, now? I know you you contracted the West Nile virus, which there've been so many viruses that have come out. A lot of times, I think this was maybe what in the 1980s, if I'm remember correctly, when the West Nile virus. There's so many that have you know, from different flu viruses to other viruses. But how were you when you contracted this virus? And did you know you had it at the inception? And how did that experience impact you and your writings? I had no idea what the West Nile virus is or was. I never heard of the West Nile virus until there was like an outbreak in Dallas-Fort Worth area. And I so remember it was like right before uh, Thanksgiving of 2008, you know, like right before Halloween, I would say. And I remember just going outside to take the puppy out, and rather than putting my arms through the sleeves of the jacket, I just dripped it over me. It was a cool, crisp, you know, fall morning. And I just remember the mosquito biting me on my forearm. I popped it. I flicked it off of me. And I never gave it a second thought. That was the absolute last thing on my mind until after two weeks later, I started feeling like I was coming down with the flu. And that's what I was diagnosed. But after two weeks, three weeks, a month went by, then I noticed my vision started changing. Everything just started getting super bright. Everything started getting super bright. I couldn't go outside. The sun was so detrimental to my sight. And I'm like, what is this? What's going on? So I went to my family doctor, and he told me it was just a bad sinus infection. So they gave me sinus medication, went two more times, nothing happened. It was not until nine months later I was diagnosed with the West virus. And about that time, uh, about that time, I had already lost over fifty percent of my sight. Oh my goodness! So by that time, it was mm-hmm. the the virus was really it was strong. Yes. You know what? One thing they tell you to, and I'm glad you you what you shared. So I appreciate that. Thank you. If you if they say if you notice something odd in your body, and maybe the first doctor says it's not this, it's that, just keep going. I actually know somebody who lost a son. Because the the doctor kept saying it's nothing, it's nothing. It's, you you got to keep going to different doctors if you know something is yeah. not right until you figure out. Uh, I mean, we want to hear the doctor say it's nothing or it's something simple. We want to hear that, but you have to keep checking. If if you're not getting better, you have to keep right. going back until you get it resolved. Can you give us a brief synopsis, Diane? Of he was there. All the time for our listeners, they might be thinking, "Is this a romance novel?" If you could tell us who who is the he, he was there all the time. If you could give us a brief overview of your book, 
Yes, but before I before I do that, you asked me how did it, it how did the what's not impact my writing? In order for me to write my books, because even being legally blind, I still write my own books, and I have to give a lot of thanks to the uh, Lighthouse for the Blind in Dallas, Texas. They they took me to training and taught me how to get back on the computer. Gave me a software called ZoomText, and that's how. I am able to write my book. Uh, the title, he was there all the time. I actually had someone who introduced the book and not knowing what it was. He started talking to the women about, you know, about a man. <laughs> and it, it is about a man, but it is about the man. It is about the most important man that we can ever have in our life, and that man is God Almighty. Yes, absolutely. So I wrote it, and and the when I uh, started losing my sight, when I started going to the lighthouse for the blind, and I started thinking of what my friend said to start writing that book, I wanted a title. And as I started looking back over my life, I just realized, you know what? In all of this, this is not a mistake. This is not happening because I'm bad. This is not happening because, you know, something about me, God is not pleased or whatever. And I got to realize mm. he was there all the time through everything that I've been through, through the surgery, through the hurt, through the pain, through losing my sight, through everything that I've been through. God was there all the time. Other people left. Other people walked away. People I thought was friends were no longer friends, calling folks, number change, not answering the call. The only person oh. that remained consistent in my life was God. Wow. You know what? That, that's, that, that, that is the blessing. Everything in this world shifts except for God, the truth. It never shifts. And in a sh- ever-shifting world where you don't know from day to day what's going to happen, we do need something firm that's not going to shift to stand on, and God is only that. That is the only thing. <laughs> Everything else, I mean, tomorrow the whole thing might flip, but God is still that rock steady that, that, will, yes. that will never shift. Now, so many of us, Diane, there are people who feel, you, you. when we believe in God, we're blessed, but everybody didn't grow up learning that, or so many people feel so incredibly alone. Uh, and even now, when they're dealing with a challenge, it could be a job loss. It's so many different things that unexpected can happen. Some people are real close to just giving up. Um, I wanted to ask you, what did you do? And I don't know if you ever felt some people really, it's a struggle to get through today. I mean, an incredible struggle every single day. They just don't feel good. But what did you what did you do to overcome feeling like you were having like the hardest experiences? You reached out to friends, they turned away from you, or other people seem to be so happy and okay, and you thinking when you contrast and compare it to yourself, like what's wrong with me? Why are they so happy, even if they're pretending? And and I'm not. How did you get through just the challenge? For somebody who might just accidentally flip over the off the shelf, and they're just ready to throw in a towel. It was not easy. It was not easy. I was so mad at God. I was so mad at God, 
and I did not even know I was mad at God. God is a random man on the bus. I'm riding home on the bus, and I'm talking to this gentleman on the bus. And after a while, you know, you get to seeing people on your route, and you get to talking. And he just said to me, you know what? You're mad at God. And I thought that was so insulting because I'm like, you don't know me, first of all. You know, you see me riding the bus. You know at this time I'm having a little trouble with my eyes. You don't know me like that to come and check me and tell me I'm mad at God. But he was so right because I started saying to God, God, how can you let this happen to me? I got the Job syndrome. I started asking God, how did that happen to me? Why did you let that happen to me? After all these things my ex-husband did to me, you allow him to have sight and look at such and such. And she's a drunk, and she has her kids, and my kids were taken away from me. God, how could you? How could you? And I was so mad at God. And when you are mad at God, you cannot see the trees from the forest. When you are mad at God, you cannot hear anything he's saying, even if you're drowning and he throws you a life jacket because you are so mad. You don't look at it like he's helping you. It looks like he's still attacking you. So for me, it was very, very difficult because then I had to go back and I had to repent to God. And then I had to go back and I had to forgive myself. And that was the first process God brought me through. It was the process of walking in forgiveness. Uh, and and not not... I really appreciate the fact that you said it's not easy to do that. You have to do it, but it's not easy to do that. Do you delve through, he was there all the time, for somebody, again, who's going through a challenge or maybe something in the future is coming their way. Um, Do you delve into how you felt during the deepest parts of the struggle? Because some people, when they're going through a, a, a hard struggle, they don't want things to be so glossed over if they're reading a book that they feel like this person doesn't understand what I'm feeling right now, my pain. Do, do you express that part of it, the hardship, not just the fact that you overcame it, but do you t- go down into the valley in the book as well so the reader can fully experience that journey. I go down deep. He was there all the time. It's my life from about six to 26 and a half. So, and he was there all the time. I talk about the first experience uh, with sexual abuse. I talk about the guy that was a friend of and he was sexually uh, molesting me and my mother saw it. And she did not come to save me because he was going to out her to my dad that she was, you know, getting jiggy with his friend. So I was like okay. the dowry. I was the down payment to keep quiet. So I talk about that, and, and that made me feel rejected by my mother. That made me feel not loved, not to, not to talk about the fact that I was called ugly. I was called, you know, my forehead was too big and my teeth were ugly and everything. So so I dove down deep into the fact of, of how sexual uh sexual abuse made me feel 
And I went on to tell about being so hungry and being so desperate for love. You know, I always told myself, I am not going to have sex until I get married. But the hunger for love, the thirst for love drew me to a man, and I gave up my virginity. Got pregnant, had to drop out of high school, you know, because now I'm a teen mom, and he's working at a fast food joint. So I dive into all that, and after that, it was one bad relationship after another, you know, having the gun put to my head, and and it was just one bad relationship about another. So he was there all the time. It shows you how one one uh, in, injustice can can take place in a child's life, and it has the power to snowball to take over that child mm. and run away. With oh my goodness. And and that's why when we're you know if I always say the most powerful people on the planet are parents because oh, yeah. kids they believe anything you say <laughs> you, you've got like this clay in your hand and how what are you gonna do with it how are you gonna shape it I don't care if you a parent who doesn't have a lot of finance or whatever you have so much power you have a, actually a, a life you can help shape and form and guide in your hands. That, that that don't don't you know it's about more than just buying Pampers and and uh, feeding your baby. You you have a lot of power in your hands uh, when you when you're a parent. And like you said, a, a right turn and no parents perfect, but a right turn can lead to very good things and help your kid avoid a lot of pain and struggle. And a wrong turn can like you set off those dominoes. Either either way. Uh, I really encourage any of our listeners who are parents, you are extremely powerful. Seek God's wisdom and take care with that, with the uh, responsibility that you have. It, it, you, you was the, so a guy on a bus, you see a guy on the bus before we start talking about I'm not in it by myself. You see a guy on the bus, he tells you you're mad, you're mad at God. Yes. <laughs> that, the process, though, we had yes. another guest on off the ship. The process of actually working through that anger, it, I know you said it took decades, but did did you meditate? Did you uh, did you just did you just keep living your life and little insights would pop up? Did you did you meditate? Did you journal? Did you did you go into therapy? Did you? Some people take nature walks, nature hikes. Some people go on retreats. What did you specifically do to help yourself move through all of this? One of the things, God is so awesome and amazing. God begins to prepare us before the storm comes. And one of the things God had me beginning to do was I got the Juanita Bynum behind the veil. And every Mm. day I came from work. I would get in my closet with that uh, CD, and I would just pray and cry out to God, and I couldn't understand why all of a sudden God was bursting prayer into me, and I couldn't understand why I was I was being forced into praying in the Holy Ghost because I I, I couldn't I couldn't figure out why. Even after that guy told me I was mad at God, I did not take him at his word because I was still mad. You know, so, but every now and then, God would allow me to start singing because another uh, guy, another guy, he told me, he he said to me, he said, he came out straight to me 
very straight. And he said, your husband is a deficit to you. And I never mm. understood what that mean. I got even upset at him because, again, you don't know me like that. How are you going to say <laughs> these things to me? So, <laughs> so God was beginning to process me. But in the process, I did not want to be processed. And it is so much easier when God begins to process us and we just go with the flow rather than fighting back because then the process becomes longer and it becomes a harder. So that's why my process took so long because I was very bullheaded. I was very stubborn because I did not want to give up on what I thought was love. And the process was making me give up what I thought was love. So I was in a conjure, and I, I, couldn't, I couldn't figure myself out. I couldn't get, get out of it. But as time went on, you know, God just started showing me little by little, little by little, not the scary stuff, but he just started showing me little by little, little by little. And then as he started showing me and I started paying attention more and more, I started gaining the strength to walk away. Ah, uh, you you had enough faith just just to go through the process, and I commend you for that. And, and I'm sure you have blessed many many people as you share your story. Now, how soon after he was there all the time did you sit down and start writing? I'm not in it by myself. The day I gave. He was there all the time to the editor. The next day, I started writing, I'm not in it by myself, because it just began to, to start bubbling up because it was such great therapy. Uh, he was there all the time with such great therapy, so I'm not in it by myself. It just started bubbling, 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 and things that I had forgotten, God just started bringing back to my mind. I mean, the very day, the very second you know, the very minute I met my ex-husband, all of that just start come, you know, just start coming alive. And in one day, I sat down, and in one day, I wrote twenty pages straight. Wow! The same day after you, the same day. Major, yeah. yeah, you had you had a lot in you uh, to get out. I definitely want to get around to asking you how you landed your editor and your, your publisher, but I have a few other questions before that that I want to get to because uh, I think that will be helpful to some of our listeners. Now, at your website, you know that a well-dressed businessman who contributes to church, and this is where we get tripped up, uh, Diane, but at your website you know mm -hmm. that a well-dressed businessman who contributes to church can be someone who abuses or beats his wife or girlfriend. That's the last thing we think. But how oh, are yeah. some... Some men, and there are women who are abusers as well. So how can how can some men and women, how are they able to hide the fact that they're physically violent? They may quote scripture. They may go to church. They, they may seem so loving. They may volunteer. They may be helpful in the community. How How is this? You don't even know this is going on behind the scenes. It's almost scary. How do you, are there any signs when somebody's doing what, They've got a good job. They're in the church. They're in the community. They're volunteering. They're very affectionate. Are there any signs to say something's wrong? This is what I say when I speak. There are no signs to a man 
or woman that is an abuser. Because usually when we think of abuse, we always think of a man beating on a woman. We never think of women beating on men. There are women that are just as aggressive and are just as controlling as men, but we don't hear too much about these stories because men have their ego and their pride. And what men would come out and say, hey, man, my wife or my girlfriend is beating on me, none of them is going to say it, but we know that it does happen. When you look at a man in the pulpit or a woman in the pulpit, all you see is their title. You don't see John Smith. You don't see Timothy Matthews. All you see is uh, you see bishop, you see apostle, you see prophet. Those are all the titles that you see. So it, it, it bothers me when I hear people say, oh, my pastor is not like this and this and that is not. And, and I have to say, no, you don't know that. You cannot say that. Because once they get off the pulpit, they get out that uh, they get out the church house, and they go behind closed doors. There is nothing you know about them. They are only there for a reason and for a short amount of time. And I don't care how how charismatic he is or how wonderful he is. You cannot look at a man or a woman as an abuser because when it comes to being an abuser. They are perfect profilers. An abusive man is just, I put an abusive man and woman in the same category of a child molester because they watch, they study, and they pray on the weak. Mm. Mm. And there are no signs. That's, now, some people will say, you know, it's, a, uh, it's almost scary some people will say, you know, we know if somebody pushes you, if they're exceptionally rude or disrespectful at a restaurant, they get they might bang the steering wheel. Get now, not all the time. They get very upset, mm-hmm. but it's, it it happens maybe frequently. Uh, they have these outbursts that that seem over the top, or they might seem very controlled. When you would mm-hmm. expect somebody to be upset, they might seem like they're really trying to control themselves. You never want to, you know, if somebody pushes you or cusses you out or shaking their finger in your face and y'all dating, I would say get out of that relationship. That personally I would. uh, Or they keep cheating on you over and over, knowing that if, if, if you cheated on them, they know how badly that would hurt them. They keep doing it to you so they don't mind enough that they're hurting you so much. Those are situations I, 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 I would, I would, or spending all your money, I would, I'd head for the hills. We're all God's children, but we ain't all headed in the in the same direction right now. So that's uh, how prevalent, how prevalent is is domestic violence? Even now, when you walk out the door, Diane, it seems like nobody does it. It seems like child abuse doesn't even exist. You walk out the door and go to the grocery store, you never see it. It's like it doesn't even exist. How how prevalent is it? Is this a, like a really a big national and international issue? It's so hidden. It's international because here is the thing about domestic abuse. Domestic abuse is not black, white, Hispanic, Asian, African. Hispanic is human being. Domestic abuse is not a rich, poor, middle class. 
homeless, domestic abuse is every man and every every community is affected by domestic uh, uh, abuse. I live where I live right now. To the right of me, there was, and this really shocked me, this really shocked me, there was a gay couple. And when I tell you, she would beat on her girlfriend like there is no tomorrow. And she wasn't oh. even waiting until they get on the inside. I remember my daughter came home and she told me, she said, they over there fighting again. She said the, the, the girl, she just, the, uh, her girlfriend was sitting on the car and she just punched her so hard she fell off the car. And then to oh. my, and then to my left. Listen to it, because when I tell you, it's everywhere, it's everywhere. And then to my left, there's an interracial couple, and you can hear her screaming and crying over there. And I was telling that to my friend, and she said, well, Diane, why don't you go over and say something? And I had to tell her, I say, here's the thing about abused women if or men. If you come to them and you are putting yourself in the place where you are going to fight that man or woman that they love, guess what? It's going to backfire on you. They're going to tell you, get out their business. They're going to tell you what's going on is none of your business. So when you get ready to intervene in domestic uh, relationships, the best thing you can do, if you hear the woman crying out, the best thing you can do is call the police. It's everywhere. Child abuse is everywhere. You know, it's in the church, it's in the Sunday school class, it's in the choir, it is everywhere. And what we've done, especially the church, we have turned a blind eye because all we care about is me, my fool, and no mom. And as long as my wife is okay and as long as my children are okay, then there's nothing I need to worry about. But what they don't understand, someday these children are going to grow up and they are going to marry your children. And then you have to live with what should have taken care of back in the day. Wow, Diane. Diane, I have to uh, – one thing, again, back to to uh, to your book, I'm Not In It By Myself, and then Abuser is another another book that you, you wrote, and also he was there all the time. But this is something that we had a guest on who – she was the wife of a pastor, and she said she had never been abused ever until she was in her 40s. So it was, I think it came as a shock to her. Uh, and it was her, it was her husband. It was a pastor who actually was abusing her. But she said that the more I found this odd, but she said the more you submit to the abuser, the worse the, worse the, the worse the abuse gets. I wanted to ask you that. She said, she said, don't ever tell them you're going to call the authorities. Don't ever yeah. tell them you're going to leave. The, I think abuse comes from deep fear. The person is. Absolutely terrified, and they're they're afraid all the time. And rather than to face their what's causing their fear at the, the, you work through what you got went through. Some of us don't work through it. We just take, keep taking it out on other people. Um, but she said the more she you submit, don't tell them you're leaving. Don't threaten to call the police. Get a plan and just act it out and be be safe. Um, why would it? You would think the abuser tells you they're upset because we know they're not upset for the reason that they say they are, but they're upset because something 
you didn't do something. You didn't clean the house. You didn't. So you do it better, and then they even abuse you even more. Is is what advice would you give to somebody who's they they're thinking about the good parts of the person and they're finding it hard to leave, and they don't know that if they stay, it's only going to get worse. What advice? What what advice could you give to somebody to to maybe who knows it might help somebody today. I agree with her. The thing is this, abusers are very manipulative and they are very controlling. The last thing they want is for anybody to have control over them. So if you call the authorities and if you tell them I'm leaving, they are now in the place where they have placed you. So now you are in control. An abuser cannot be placed in control because they are they are narcissistic people. So I would urge anybody, if you are in an abusive relationship right now, don't tell them I'm leaving. Don't tell them I'm calling the authorities. What you simply do, you just pack your stuff up, take a day off, and, and you leave. This is what I did when I left my ex-husband. I got up that morning. I was getting dressed. I, it, it just so happened to be it was on the weekend, so I was able to dress casually on the weekend. So I put on some, some jeans and, and, and I think like a polo shirt or whatever, and I was pre- pretending like I was getting dressed and ready to go to work. And I wait for him to leave the house first. And after he left the house, I was pretending like I was leaving. But what I did after he left, I packed up my stuff and I just put everything in the car and I left. And while he was gone, I had I had someone come over with a U-Haul truck, and what I couldn't get out, they got out for me. And if you tell them I'm leaving, the abuse get worse. When you hush, the abuse get worse. Because for me, I was thinking, okay, you know what? If I don't fight back, if I don't talk back, then he will just let it go. But when you do that, you are relinquishing your power. You have power in your mouth. You have power in your voice. So when you say don't do it again and they do it again and you take action, that lets them know, okay, she's not that kind. Okay, so I need to conduct myself in a different way than I would with the other women. But like for me and that that pastor's wife and so many other women, we stay quiet because we just want all the quarreling. We want all the beating. We want all the cussing. We just want it to go away. But when we do that, we place ourselves deeper, deeper in the control. I remember one time my ex-husband I was driving home, and he called me, and he said to me, I own you. And when a man starts thinking of you as property, when a man can call you and tell you he owns you, baby, believe me, and he really did own me because I was whatever he wanted. Whatever he said, there was no coming back. He said this, and I did it. He said, go, you know, I get home from work on Friday, and I was in the house until Monday to go back to work. If I had to go to the grocery store, we went on his turn. So absolute, absolute control, and they rule with a feast of fear. So you don't want to get hit. You don't want to get cussed out. You don't want your head slammed in the wall. You don't want to have to lie about that black eye anymore, so you just be quiet. And you have to love, love yourself. The other guest, she said she asked herself, why do I think I deserve this? 
and that was her path out. Soon as I, soon as she was able to say, "I don't deserve this," and and really believe it in herself, that's when the ideals, the insight to leave came. I wanted to, to a couple of more questions before we start. I want to delve into your public speaking, and we have less than ten minutes. But do abusers okay. do they only abuse when they're intoxicated? Do they so so if they never get, get drunk, they won't abuse you? Or they, do they? Is that the only time they they are abusive? No, in the beginning. They might say, well, baby, you know, I was drunk, and, you know, when I drink how I get, you know, so they'll use the alcohol as a way out. But after they've done it a few times, because, you know, after every assault, then there's the romance phase. So after every assault, you know, then you get your new purse, you know, you you get your hair done, you know, you go to the movies, go to dinner, and that's the way they tighten the cord around your neck. So it may start to the point where they blame it on the alcohol, but after a while they do it Sunday morning, they do it Monday evening, they don't care. Whenever they want to flip, they just want to flip because they now know they possess the power over you to do to you whatever they want to do to you. And you are so weak because they have absolute control over you and they pull every string in your life that you're not going to go anywhere. And that is the epitome of not loving yourself. And that's one of the reasons why we get in these relationships. We don't love ourselves. Yes. Yeah, and that's what, like I said, the other guest, she asked herself, why do I think I deserve this? Can you tell us quickly before we go into your public speaking, what are some of the resources that men and women who are being abused or people who think a friend or a relative might be being abused, what are some resources that they can tap into or or turn to for help? You can go to the Internet and uh, pull up domestic abuse. There are so many uh, numbers and, and, and affiliation and community uh, uh, events that's going on. You can go there. You can do that. You can go to your church. You know, you can turn to family members because family members will be the quickest to help you, you know, because they've been already, most of the time, they're already telling you, get out, get out, get out. So when it's time for you to get out, some of them will, you know, will reach out to get you. And one thing I tell everybody, hey, when you really want to get out, you fall on your knees and you say, okay, God, get me out. And I promise you, because that's what I did. I said, God, I'm tired of being a man in this family. I'm tired. I need to be out. And he got me out. Wow, yes, yes, and that's in any situation when you make up your mind and you remove the blocks in yourself that part of you wants to do it God's way and part of you doesn't, when that part that doesn't want to do it yields and surrenders, you'll see that miracle, you'll see that answer come through. When and why did you start public public speaking, Diane? I I didn't again this this the Lord just kept on revealing me to me because I didn't know me. So I just started talking and people started listening. So then uh next thing I know I was at a conference, I met somebody, can you come talk? I said, Okay, then somebody else, can you come talk? And that it just snowballed. It's just one person heard me and uh somebody else heard and now they just call me and I say, if you need me, call me. I have no problem telling my testimony. I have no problem empowering the people of God. I love doing it because the smile that comes on their face when enlightenment comes and the smile they get on the face when they see
see somebody who was where they were are now out and healthy and whole. So I love mm. doing it. Yes. How did you land your – this is a challenge that a lot of writers have. How did you find your publisher? How did you – did you go to a conference and you met a, a – told a publisher about your manuscript and that's how you found a publisher for your book? How did you find your publisher? Mm-hmm. I remember I was listening to Bishop Jakes, and Bishop Jakes say, when the student is ready, the teacher will show up. And that is exactly what happened. I was at church, and, of course, uh, my friend had already been talking to me about writing a book, and out of nowhere, this lady comes to church, and she wanted to share this new book she wrote. And then she goes on to say, oh, at the end of it, like, you know, the Lord just quickened her to say, oh, and by the way, if you need somebody to publish your book, let me know. Wow. And I said, oh, okay. I was so anxious. I was just, I hate to say it to y'all, I was so anxious for service to be over <laughs> so I could go and talk to her. And I talked to I did not have a manuscript. I, I didn't know what a manuscript was. And being legally blind, a manuscript is useless to me. So I just sat down. I got a book. I look at the books and I just started writing, and that's how I write. I, it just, it, God just put it in my brain, and I just write. Wow. Oh, my goodness. It just <laughs> came together for you. Congratulations. This is, I, we, we have so, so little time left. I had to ask you this, though. Do you plan to write a novel, Diane? And if yes, so, what please. do you think? That, I am actually, you plan to write um, a, yes, my first novel comes out next month. I mean, next week. It's oh actually my goodness. called The Abuser. Yes. And after that, I have nine more coming out, and I am, I am on book number nine. So look out for a book from me every year for the next 10 years, God willing. Oh, my goodness. Can you also share with us some uh, – uh, are you on – on? Uh, so The Abuser is a novel. Okay. And, and can you share with – are you on any social media, and if so – how can off-the-shelf listeners find you on social media? Yes, please. You can go to Facebook, put in my name, Diane, L-E-B-R-I-N. You'll see my page, my page pop up. He was there all the time. Like me on Facebook. Like me on Instagram. Like me on Twitter. I'm on Periscope. Follow me on Periscope. And I'm trying to do Snapchat and a whole lot of more things, but you can find me. I am there. And if you need me, all you have to do is send me an inbox, we talk and discuss it, and I can be where you are. Oh, listen to you. Do you have any upcoming <laughs> speaking engagements? You're a very good speaker for our listeners who might want to catch you in person at a speaking engagement. Do you have any upcoming speaking engagements? I have a few more radio interviews, but as far as uh, speaking engagements, so far I have only October and December set out. I myself will be having my first event October 7th for uh, domestic and uh, sexually abused women, and that my ministry is from victim to victor to live in victorious. Okay. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> we, what a wonderful way to wrap up today's show. We are at the end of today's Off the Shelf. For those of you who might have come in midstream or near the end and you you really want to be blessed and enjoy the fullness of the show, after it, it finishes streaming, you can go back and listen to it in the archives as often as you want. It just something in you might catch. 
and, and you might receive a blessing or come out of a, a of a challenge. But we have been just honored and delighted to have with us our special off the shelf guest today was Diane Lebrin. Again, if you Google her, uh, I would do it through her website. For some reason, LeBron yeah. James came up. But it's, it's D-I-A-N-L-E-B-R-I-N. It is it is close to LeBron, her last name, but instead of an O, it's a it's an I. It, uh, she is the a, a wonderful public speaker, the author of two nonfiction books, and she's working on, she's already written several novels, one which will be out, The Abuser, next month. But her books are so far on the market. He was there all the time, and I'm not in it by myself. Her website is labrinbooks.com, L-E-B-R-I-I-I-I, L-E-B-R-I-N-B-O-O-K-S, labrinbooks.com. And again, her name is Diane Labrin. We are, we are just blessed to have had her with us and wish her the very, very best. We want to thank all of our off-the-shelf listeners for tuning in this Saturday. Please mark your calendars every Saturday, 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time or New York City Time to, to, to catch Off-the-Shelf Book Talk Radio. Remember, you are awesome. You are incredible. You're so amazing. I hope one day you really, really grasp that. Go out and create a fabulous day for yourself Thank you so much, Diane. I'll shoot you an email. Bye for now.